You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. We have uh, enjoyed these letters uh, together, and we come to hear God's Word every week. So this is why we gather together. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I pray that you see uh, what the church is about, uh, and particularly here this morning. We're going to hear some uh, really good things about how we should live, but also how the church is supposed to respond. And so if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one and turn to page 1050 in those uh, black hardcover Bibles in front of you. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Ash and I started, it was actually during COVID, we were like, uh, we started to think about, we're going to remodel our house. We're going to redo our kitchen. We're going to do all these things because we had all this time on our hands. We didn't know what we were going to do with it. And so I started about all these projects that I would never finish because I'm not handy anyway. And so we just said, well, let's just build a house uh, instead. So uh, if some of you have been to our house, we, we live over off of Capitol now. We built a house. Uh, we signed the contract about a little over two years ago. We moved in about a year and a half. I've been there. Uh, and so when we began the building process, we wanted to know how were the, was this particular builder, how were these contractors going to actually adhere to the codes to make sure that our home was up to the standard. Uh, so we asked questions about the framing. We asked questions about the electrical. We asked questions about how do they put the siding on the house, all kinds of questions that we want to know if we're going to pay this kind of money for a home, if we're going to build a new home, we want to make sure that it's up to the standards. And so if you go on uh, the websites, all the home builders have these this industry standards, all these codes that they say we're up to these and we're going to build better and stronger than any of these other companies. So we're, we have the best industry standards. And so we trusted them right, to build a home and we're thankful that uh, we did that. But we had two inspections done. I called a company and said, hey, can you come out and do an inspection uh, before the drywall <clears throat> goes up? Can you uh, actually come and look at all the things that I have no idea about and tell me if there's any problems? And actually, they found a few uh, that was able to be corrected before the drywall went in, which things are a lot harder to do once the drywall is up. But then later on, uh, when the house was finished, a few days before we moved in, we had another inspection done to make sure... Uh, that everything was still up to code, that nothing was missing. In the same way that the housing market, the housing companies have standards, the church has standards. And oftentimes there are people that walk through these doors and look and inspect uh, us. And not just walk through these doors, they walk into your, our homes and they walk into our workplaces and in our schools and they begin to inspect how do we live, whether we like it or not. Because we call on the name of Christ, there's something important for us to realize. That everywhere we go, we take His name with us and we have to live up to that name. There are gospel standards. And as Paul, as, he, as he's beautifully done through this second letter to the church in Thessalonica, he ends here with some standards by which the church should live by. That we should give ourselves to. So here's what we're going to see this morning when we walk through this, uh, this last chapter here. Paul responds to those who are disruptive by contrasting his work, ethic, and instruction. Right, so what Paul's going to do is he's going to contrast the disciples' life, someone who gives their life to Jesus in every way, 
with the disruptor's life. Someone who's being a disruption in the church. So if you are a disciple today, though, this is what you should know. This is what you should do. We must live according to the gospel standard to maintain our church's well-being. And you may say, well, that's a weird uh, phrase, well-being. What I mean by that is peace. When we maintain the peace of our church, which we get that from verse, uh, verses 16 and 18, that the peace of our church, well-being of our church, is maintained. The focus of our church is the gospel and the gospel growth both in us and through us, inward and outward. Right? Pastor Ryan told you last week that as he, Paul transitions to chapter 3, he's now transitioned to how we should live. Paul always gives us great uh, theology, needed beliefs that we need to incorporate into our lives, but he always comes to the part where what we believe must now impact how we live. And so, how we live must maintain gospel growth. Because oftentimes we can close our eyes and shut our ears off and we begin to just think that nothing's going wrong, but in reality things are kind of crumbling around us. Here's the, here's the deal that I think Paul is saying to us this morning. Our lives must match the tradition of the apostles. What do I mean by that? The tradition of the apostles is the gospel that's handed down. Paul often says, the gospel, my gospel, I've handed down to you. I have a pastor friend who, who asked this question. He said, if Peter, James, and John, and Paul walked into our church, would they recognize our worship and our lives as distinctly Christian? This is what we mean by gospel tradition. Does our lives show the gospel in a way that is unmatched and unparalleled and it's distinctly Christian? You see, the church is fundamentally others-focused. But oftentimes, churches can begin to look inward in and of itself to protect itself instead of thinking, how do we continue to spread the gospel both in our own lives and in the lives of, the, of people that we know don't have Jesus Paul is specifically concerned about how the gospel spreads. He seems to highlight, though, this one particular issue here in chapter 3. Right? The church is being burdened, it's being weighed down, and therefore it's hindering gospel growth. So, as we walk through this text this morning, here's what I want us to see three ideas that help us maintain the well-being of our church by living to the gospel standard. Three ideas to help us Live to the gospel standard. Number one, the gospel tradition is a way of life. The gospel tradition is a way of life. Look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother and sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. Now Paul is laying a strong command. This is not something that you can pass over. He says, brothers and sisters, to catch our attention, those of you who call the name of Jesus... And he even gives the authority there, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? What Paul is about to command is very important. He says to keep away, right? keep your distance, which is explained in verses 14 and 15, which we'll get to in a minute. Now to understand this word idle, we need to go back to chapter 4 of the first letter. Right? Remember, this word seems to mean more than just idle or lazy. 
It means to be disruptive, which, which is important in a section talking about the gospel growth and gospel spreading around the world, don't you think? So this is an issue. These people may be idle, they may be lazy, or they may be disruptive, giving their work and their lives to things that don't matter and take the attention away of gospel growth. Now notice a couple things. There must have been people who were living this way, or Paul wouldn't have said it. And we don't know the issue or understand this word 100%. At some level, we are trying to understand it and then apply it. We don't quite know his main focus on the word, but we do know his main focus on the whole of the whole passage, which is the church's well-being and the church spreading the gospel. So now look back down at the end of verse 6. I want you to see why Paul gives this command. Right? Those who are idle are not living according to the tradition received from us. Paul has taught them something, and these people are not living up to it. There's a disconnect somewhere. Many of you maybe uh, put your Christmas trees up this week. And if you're like me, I already know that my Christmas tree has one little light bulb that's out. And that little disconnect is going to make all that row of lights out. And it's going to frustrate me to no end because I will not be able to fix it. And so I'm going to have to hide it with other lights that I shouldn't have to buy. But I had to because the tree that I bought doesn't work. But there's a disconnect there. And in these people's lives, there's a disconnect. Something is not making sense. Something is not computing right. They are not living rightly. And this word live is very important. Right? It literally means to walk. That's what it means to walk, or a way of life, or conduct, someone's behavior. Right? Living in the, in the tradition is important because it shows obedience. Right? Remember, this tradition is the gospel tradition from chapter 2. Right? The authority of Jesus has been given to the apostles who now give this authority to the church to live a certain way. Those who were idle are now being negatively contrasted in the light of those who walk in the faithfulness of God, and those who walk in a good and honored, responsible light toward outsiders. Those who are idle, those who are disruptive, they are not living worthy of the gospel. This means that the tradition of the gospel is not just some head knowledge. Right, Paul already used this in chapter 2. We talked about the authority of the gospel being handed down, but now Paul uses it in an ethical sense. It's not just a doctrine to memorize. The gospel tradition changes how we live. It must be a way of life. What's one of the biggest hindrances to the gospel growing and spreading? We've talked about this before. It's hypocrisy. The church says it believes something, but doesn't act the way that it believes. Our actions must line up with our beliefs. Let me give you a math equation. Some of you are really good at math. Some of you may not be. But really simple. We all have a stated belief. We all have a stated belief. Like, I believe that the Bible is God's Word. We can all say that statement. But if you were to examine my life weekly, and you notice that my Bible sat on the edge of my uh, end table beside my bed, would you actually believe that I believe that the Bible is God's Word? Because we can say our stated belief, but perform a different action then, in turn, gives our actual belief. Our stated belief plus our performed action equals our actual belief. 
you've heard it, we've said it, I've said it multiple times. It seems to be Paul must have used this similar phrase. Actions speak louder than words. Look at verse 7, he continues. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. While we were, or we were not idle among you, we did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Paul has handed down this tradition of the gospel to this young church, but that isn't all. He's handed it down. Yes, you are to believe this, but he then says also, I've also been an example to you. He tells them that they should imitate. This, he says in the CSB, you, you could, or you know, maybe you should, but it's a must imitate. They can follow the behavior of the apostles, and they should follow that behavior. I have a neighbor, and his name is Mark. Mark is um, an older gentleman, and uh, his house is right next to mine. And if you've been to my house, you've probably seen it. His grass is like carpet. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And if you laid on it, you would be like, this is, this is great. So uh, me and one of my other neighbors, we were talking about Mark's grass. And we said, we should put a homing beacon on Mark's so that we know when he goes outside to take care of his grass. And we watch him and we do the exact same thing that he does so that our grass will look exactly like his grass. Because the other neighbor's on the other side of Mark's house. And so we kind of look bad because Mark's grass looks so good. And we then said, hey, let's just do everything that Mark does. Now, to be honest, Mark is out there every Saturday in the summer, and he's mowing it for at least three hours. He's, he's combing it, raking it. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. But I'm like, I really don't want to do that. But it looks wonderful. So, we, so what, I, what I'm saying is if I want my grass to look like his grass, then I won't, I'm going to have to imitate what he does. That's exactly, that's exactly what Paul is saying. You have to imitate my life. He's saying to the Thessalonians, you need to imitate me because I know what it takes to live out the Christian life. I know what it takes for the gospel to be spread all across the world. I know what it takes for a church to have a peace, a well-being, a harmony. Church, we need disciples, and we need disciplers, and we need mentors. This is why we've structured our church around a disciple-making pathway. Because we believe that all of us need someone speaking into our lives and then helping us speak into someone else's life. That we need people to show us the ropes. We need people to show us what it looks like to live out the gospel. Paul knew that this young church would struggle against the opposition and suffering and that they would struggle to live out the gospel in their time and place. But when the gospel is weaved into the fabric of our lives through mentors and people who are pointing into us, it helps us live the gospel out. This is why we need, this is why you need people in your life that's pouring into you. And I don't just mean from here. Yes, this is a form of discipleship, but it's not the only form. And so you need people in your life that you're receiving counsel from, that people are speaking into your life they see the the parts that it's easy to hide just walking in on Sunday morning that we need to know the sin struggles that we have and be able to to confront those we need people to speak into our lives and we need people that we can imitate and follow our lives and pattern our lives around this is what Paul's saying imitate me who's someone right now that said I could imitate that person we all have them we need to ask, who can I imitate? And then ask them, hey, would you mind helping me live out the gospel? 
When the gospel is a way of life, it helps us maintain the well-being of our church. Right? And then it helps us live up to the gospel standard. Now, I want you to notice, though, what this gospel standard is focused on, which brings us to the second idea. The gospel tradition is others-focused. The gospel tradition is others-focused. I want us to read verses 7 again with verse 8. Because I think it demonstrates the focus that Paul has, which is others. Look there again at verse 7. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So first, Paul says, we were not <coughs> disruptive. We were not idle. And interesting enough, he ties this word idle to work. So at some level, we know that this word idle, the opposite of that is working. But there's some, there's some things we still don't understand quite yet. He says, look how he describes it. He says, we did not eat anyone's food free of charge. I mean, they paid for all the food that they ate. This would also include their clothes and their house and their shelter. They stayed with Jason. If you look back in the book of Acts, they stayed with Jason. And most likely, they paid Jason for their housing. They were not a burden in this way. Paul says, again, we labored and toiled. This is almost the exact same phrase that he used in the first letter. They worked extremely hard, even night and day. Why? Why would they give themselves to work jobs night and day so that they would not be a burden to any of them? Not just to the church as a whole, but to any of these young believers. Paul understood that paying for his team to do gospel work would be a big burden to this young church. The gospel's advance is more important than support that they would receive from these people. What does that mean? Paul worked extremely hard. Because it isn't just that he worked a job and then went home and then came to worship. No, he worked a job and then preached the gospel and discipled and taught this church and gave his life. He tells Timothy, I have been wrung out like a rag. I have wrung my life dry because of my gospel labor. Church, we live in a culture of low commitment right now. It's easy. We can, we can say, yes, the one thing, ah, now I'm going to do something else. And I can just go and get it and I can find it better for whatever price that I want to. We live in a culture of low commitment and low investment. And church, we must look at Paul's example and say he was wrung out like a rag. It doesn't mean that we need to forsake our families. It doesn't mean that we need to uh, be sick and tired all the time. But it does mean that we're to follow this example. It's sad that we have to, I have to uh, give pretense to that. Because we live in a, in a world where everybody's like, well, I want life balance. There's no such thing as life balance. Because when Jesus comes back, he's going to burn up all the other stuff that we think is important. And what's going to be important is how far did the gospel spread because of your life and because of your effort. And if I'm tired at the age of 80, which I hope I make it that long, if I'm, if I'm tired at that point, praise God. Because we have given our lives to eternal matters. In church, right now, let me be very clear with you. You have a world that is telling you that it's okay. Just, just sit back, relax, do you. 
That flies in the face of what Paul is saying here. He says, no, you are to imitate me, to give your life for the gospel so that it spreads, so that you are not a burden to anyone. In fact, you're to be a, the opposite of a burden, to be a plus on the side of gospel work. Paul continues in verse 9. He says, It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did not uh, make it ourselves an example to you so that we would imitate us. If you remember, this came up in the first letter. Paul says they have a right. Literally, they have the authority as apostles to claim money. You, you should pay us. Paul could have done that, but he doesn't. He says, no, instead, I'm going to work so that you can be uh, strengthened, so that you can use that money to then be sent to other churches and to plant other churches. Paul had a right. He says, authority. This was given by God that Paul could have said, you need to pay me. Here in our time and place, we hear a lot about our rights, don't we? Right, we are thankful that we live in a country where we are free. We have freedoms to do this this morning, absolutely. But often our conversation turns from freedom to rights. From my freedoms to my rights. And there's a difference between my rights as a citizen of this country and how I should use those rights as a citizen of a higher heaven and kingdom. They're different because I am now a disciple of Jesus. We don't wield our rights as weapons, but we gladly lay them down for the sake of the gospel and our brothers and sisters. May we imitate Paul, not just in his work ethic, but also in his love for others. So much so that, yes, I have a right to this. But I'm going to lay it down so that the gospel may spread, not just here, but all across the world. He continues in verse 10. In fact, when we are with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. Paul says, if you don't work, you don't need to eat. It's really important. It may sound really harsh, and we say, that's interesting for Paul to say that. But Paul's focus is for the church to be strengthened in the gospel and for that gospel to spread. So if anyone is hindering that gospel because they are not working and able to work and they're receiving support and weighing down the church, then Paul says, no, they should go to work and feed themselves. This is serious. Very serious. Look at verse 11. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. And Paul gives a little more light on the situation surrounding those who are idle. He says some are idle, that they are, they are not active, but busy bodies. It seems that this word uh, seems to be a waste of time. They, yeah, they may not just be uh, laying down on the couch, but they may be active in ways that are wasting time. That may, that's what he means by busy bodies. They're just running around like a chicken with her head cut off doing nothing. Or my wife might say that's why she... Uh, sweeps the kitchen floor because when I sweep there's still crumbs everywhere. I don't know why. It just always happens. Every time I sweep there's still crumbs on the floor. Was my actions a waste of time? That's what Paul's saying. Is this a waste of time? What are the actions we're giving ourselves to? This was a huge distraction for the church and its mission. These people were caring for the poor that were among them. They were giving, providing for them. And if someone said, hey, I need support but we're able to work, Paul says, no, do not be weighed down by them. The problem was not inactivity, but the wrong kind of activity. The problem was not inactivity, but the wrong kind of activity. This is a warning to us. Be careful what you strive for. 
What are those things in our lives that pull our attention away from the gospel, away from the church, away from the mission? A couple questions to ask yourself. What do I give my time to? What do I give my time to? Those things take away time from my Bible reading. Do those things take away time from my praying for my church family? Those things take away my time for serving my fellow brothers and sisters. What do I give my time to? Secondly, what do I talk about most? I've told you before, we, we all may struggle in evangelism, but we all talk about the things that we want to talk about. I would really love to stand up here and tell you that UNC won on, on Friday, but I can't, and I need to eat, eat my own words that NC State won. You know, it's okay. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to work through that. But I would love to talk to you about that. Why? Because I love to talk about Carolina or football or basketball because it's easy. It comes natural to me. Any one of you could walk up to me at any point in time and I could have a conversation about sports pretty immediately. But is that wasting my time? Is that, is, that, is that really helping me encourage you? Is that really helping me work to labor among you? Not to say that we can't watch those things. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this, is that we must be careful what we talk about. Because is it actually helping? Does it encourage us? Does it build us up? Often we can make important issues, gospel issues, raising the attention of our church to these issues or such situations. But the church cannot do everything and it cannot solve every issue. All of these things may be good. They take away from gospel growth. So may we be careful what we strive for and what we talk about. Because at the end of the day, Paul was mainly concerned about the gospel spreading in us and through us. Now continue in verse 12. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. Why? Why should they work and provide for themselves? So they no longer are a burden to this church. They had enough opposition to worry about. They had enough suffering going on in their church family that they enough of the people were poor that they had to care for. And Paul says, let them work. Let them provide for themselves so that the church can maintain its focus and its mission. The gospel standard is others focused. Yes, there are people that need to work, as Paul says. There are people that need to focus on the things that they should focus on. Why? So that the church can then be rightly others-focused. Paul doesn't say don't take care of the poor. He says, no, we should do those things but not be burdened by other issues. It helps us maintain the well-being of our church. But how do we handle situations, and they do arise, like the one described here? It brings us to the third idea. The gospel tradition is worth discipline. It's worth discipline. Look there at verse 13. But as, you, as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul transitions now from uh, the difficulty in the church family to the church at large. Right? He talks about to the church, hey, do not, uh, you should imitate us. Do not be burdened by these people. And then he speaks directly to those people. You should work. And now he talks to the whole church again. He encourages them to not grow weary in doing good. The burden of focusing on these other issues or these other people are weighing down uh, their churches. That's a heavy burden. Paul says that we should press on, though, in doing good, to do what is right, to serve into, for the interest of others, for our church family. 
There are needs that should be provided for. There are needs that some of you have. There are needs that we've met through other ways, financially or helping in, uh, in uh, physical ways. Those should be done. The church has a responsibility to meet those needs. But when those needs are, are coming up because we don't work or because we're focusing on other things, then now we're causing it to be a burden and not to be a blessing. This is why it had become a burden to those who were being served because they were idle. So the church must serve. The church must give. The church must do. That is a part of how we live because we're others-focused. But there's also something else we should do, and that's to do church discipline. Look there at verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. You don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now these two verses don't give us a lot, and they're very important, and they seem to be the first words on church discipline in the New Testament. But Paul is clear that obedience is a marker of growth in both the individual and in the community. Obedience to the gospel must be the standard by which we live. And Paul says that if anyone does not obey these instructions, the commands, the traditions, these words, we're to take note of them. This means we must be aware of the gospel standard and of those who are not living up to it. This is important because it helps us maintain the well-being of our church. Now, to be honest, some people may call this judging. That's not what's going on here. There's a standard that we have to live by. There's a standard that the gospel holds, and the church then has to say, are we living up to that standard? And we call each other, we spur each other on. Hey, are you living up to that standard? There is a standard that we must live up to. Obedience demonstrates our growth in response. It shows our maturity to other people. But Paul also says don't associate with this person or these people. Now this word has a big range. Don't associate has a big range of meaning. It could be individual. It could be uh, church-wide. Uh, it could be um, public or private. But either way, Paul now, he hones in. We're not to associate with these people. He's given the first steps to church discipline. If you know about church discipline, you know from 1 Corinthians 5, it's, it's a little more detailed because it's more serious there. If you go to Matthew 18, you see more steps. So Paul is given a big summary of a very detailed uh, practice. And the point is to correct disobedience. The point is to correct disobedience. So we now must use wisdom on how we do it not if we are to do it. How we do it, not if we're to do it. This is why Paul says to stay away from them. In the first century in Thessalonica, they, were, they lived in an honor-shame culture. We have places like that today, the, the, uh, places in, in the world. And although we don't live in that culture today, it's important for us to still practice church discipline. Church discipline is the corporate act to correct disobedience and for us to refuse to support any distractions or disruptiveness in our church family. But remember, as we walk through this, the point of this is restoration. It's not for us to condemn. That's God's job. Our job is to hope and pray for restoration to take place. Paul says, consider him a brother and not an enemy. This person is not an outsider, so they mu we must not be harsh with them, but we must warn them. Think of 1 Thessalonians 5. We must warn them to bring them back into God's family. Think about it this way. 
uh, some of you have played sports, some of you have coached uh, different kinds of sports. Coaches, when they correct players, they correct players because they want them to grow, they want them to learn, they want them to do the right thing on the field or on the court. But if coaches don't care, and some of you may have had this experience, if coaches don't care, they're not going to correct you. There are lots of kids that if I, if I just didn't care, I wouldn't correct them because I've told them a hundred times. But we correct because we care. Correction is a good thing. And this is important. Right? There's an underlying assumption for us as a church. We believe, yes, that Jesus is a Savior of the whole world, but He's also Lord. Right? This means that we not only believe the gospel, but we repent of our sins. The gospel isn't only to believe, it's to repent. And the Lordship of Jesus has been on full display in these two small letters. If we believe that Jesus is God, then we must submit to Him. Which means we must maintain the well-being of our church by doing church discipline. So let me give you a few principles for us out of this text. Number one, we have a responsibility to practice church discipline. It's our job. We have three passages in the New Testament that are very clear about what we are to do. But this correction is also a serious matter. It's, we must not ever take this lightly. If it affects the whole well-being, the whole witness of the church, then we must walk in this. If it's public or persistent sin, that's how we can think. This is public or persistent sin. right? If my wife uh, wants to call me out on the sinfulness of eating all the ice cream, that's one thing. Does that need to be uh, told before the church? Probably not. But if I were to commit adultery, then absolutely the church should be aware of that and then should call me to repentance. You see the difference? Public persistent and the severity of the sin. Now, let me be also be clear. The, the correction process can take time. I think if we, if we look at Matthew 18, we see that this is, it's not just a one and done deal. When we look at Matthew 18, one is to go, hey, I've seen this as a pattern in your life. Brother or sister, let me, let me call you to repentance. Do you, do you see this? Do you, do, you, do you hear the gospel? Do you respond to it? And we pray that that happens. And we know that's already happened among you. We've said that to you before. We know this happened, has already happened in our church family. If that doesn't work, hey, we go grab a brother and we bring him with us. Hey, do you, do you see this? And now we try to persuade them. Do you hear this from both of us? If they don't respond to that, now then... Those people are now to go to the pastors, to the elders of the church. And then the elders are now given time to then begin to meet with this person or these people. Right? It may take weeks. It may take weeks. If Pastor Ron and I are informed about a serious sin situation, we're not just going to act immediately. We're going to pursue this person. We're going to pray with this person. We're going to hear uh, testimonies from other people. Uh, hey, this is what I'm seeing in their life. And then we're going to begin to pray about how do we handle this. And then if that person is to be found in sin, we're going to call them to repent. That may be weeks. That could be a month or two. That could be a couple months before that actually takes place, before the church ever hears about it. Because the next step would be for the, our church to be told, hey, this person is in sin and they are not repenting. This is what they've done. This is, these are the examples that we've seen. And so church, it's now our job to now call them to repentance. But it isn't just in that moment, boom, we, we now don't associate with them. No, we, now the church has been made aware, and now we as a church begin to pray for this person. As a corporate whole, hey, we pray for them. 
so they may respond, they may repent, and we give them time. And if they do not repent, because the whole church now has spoken into their life, and if they cannot submit their lives to the church family, then, then we now must not associate. Paul says other places that we must not let them fellowship with us. Now this is important. Because we want them to still worship with us. But our job is now to persuade them in this. All right, so next, the church is the source of Christian fellowship. All right, this is where we find our fellowship together. This is where we are built up and grow. But when there's sin, we must cut that off. All right, you couldn't escape Thessalonica. You couldn't escape their church. It was the only church in the area. And so that was your only source, your only source of fellowship. It was really important. There was high investment here in this church. That's why we have a church covenant, because we believe that we are investing highly, that God has placed us here, that we now begin to work together. We get to hold each other to the standards of the gospel. But in this situation, our relationships would change with this person. If this person continues in sin, our relationship would change. We would identify it and say that you are now under this correction, this discipline. They wouldn't be able to take the Lord's Supper, but they would be encouraged to come and sit and hear the preaching of God's Word. Why? So that they would repent. We, can't, we shouldn't spend casual time with them. We don't get to watch football with them anymore on Sundays. No, the next time we get to see them, we go to them and we ask them. We try to persuade them, please repent of your sin. We hold up Jesus and we say, do you see what's happening? And we ask the Spirit to work in and through them. We pray for them corporately. At the end of the day, we want brothers and sisters who are in sin to be restored to God and to our church. But if they do not repent, and we've put them under church discipline, then we have protected the well-being of our church. We've protected the witness of our church. But But we don't just forget them then. Yes, we may be protected, but our goal is to see them restored. And so we pray for them. Pray for those who have not repented of their sin. This is hard. As Covenant Hope, we've not ever had to do that whole process. But it's going to happen. Why do I know that? Because I fight sin every day. You fight sin every day. And it's really easy for us to be tempted to say, you know what? I like that sin a whole lot. And so we must hold the standard of the gospel really high, and then we need to come alongside each other to help us hold that gospel standard where it should be. But that's not the only thing. Where do we find the strength? Look at verse 16. We find strength in Christ. Paul says, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. Remember, well-being, peace, harmony of the church. This is why we protect it, because it's important. But then Paul says, may the Lord of the one who is peace himself, the one who can restore, the one who can bring harmony, the one that brings unity, he is the one who gives you peace in every way. May the Lord be with you all. That's how Paul ends this. You may think this is hard. We know this is a struggle, but Jesus is there with you. The peace that we maintain, the peace that we must maintain is given by Christ. And he's the only one that helps us do that. The gospel is so important that we must live lives up to the gospel standard. It's the tradition that's been handed down to us. 
through God's word and we now submit our lives to it. And if we don't, our church can be weighed down by these burdens that we're not meant to handle. This is why we focus on each other so that the gospel spreads. This is why we must help one another live out the gospel daily. And when necessary, it's when we're willing to protect the gospel and the witness of the church by correcting behavior that does not line up with this standard. Oftentimes we think of tradition in the sense of maintaining uh, the look of a building or rituals or a way of life. But the gospel is not about that. It's about preserving the well-being of our church and its mission. That we are all growing in the gospel and we are all striving to reach people with the gospel. That is why we do this. That is why we live this way. And Paul ends, look at where he ends in verse 18. Verse 17, he says, I write this in my own hand. We know this is from Paul. He gets to verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. To ever live up to this standard would be impossible without the gospel, without God's grace to us. Without Jesus, we would not be able to do any of this. So it's in the gospel, in Christ, that he came, as we get into the Christmas season, he came in the form of a human being as a baby, lived a perfect life, was killed for our sin on the cross, and God's wrath was poured out on him. But he was raised three days later, so now that we get to live in his righteousness, we get to live in his power, right? This is all impossible without God sending him into the world. This is all impossible without the Holy Spirit empowering us to live this way. Because for those of us who have received the gospel, repent and believe, we now have been empowered by the Spirit to live this way. In church, without God's help, we won't be able to do any of this. And so our prayer today, my prayer for you, my prayer for us, is that God's Spirit is strong and mighty in us so that we may live out the gospel and we may show the world that there is something different about us even when it's hard. Pray with me. God, I pray that we would live out the gospel together, that we would be a people who trust you to work in us, that we would trust the Spirit's work in other, other people. God, may we be a church that is at peace and focused on your mission to spread the gospel all across the world. May we not be burdened down by things that are not important. May we serve well, but then call each other to give our lives for the sake of the gospel. I pray that you will help us do these things because we need you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.